no surprise that newsmakers try to manipulate the audience. They want you to believe that they are the one holding the line and they'll use any trick they can to get you there. But don't let them fool you. Get unspun. I'm Amanda Sturgill. I've been a reporter, and today I teach future reporters to cut the spin and think critically about what newsmakers say. My podcast, Unspun, shows you how to know when you're being manipulated by the news. Learn to spot the tricks and how to make up your own mind about what's true. So if you're tired of being fooled by the news, subscribe to Unspun today. Unspun, because you deserve the truth. Welcome to Teacher Quit Talk. I'm Miss Redacted. And I'm Mrs. Frazzled. Every week we explore the teacher exodus to find out what, if anything, could get these educators back in the classroom. We've all had our moments where we thought, what the hell am I doing here? From burnout to bureaucracy to soul-sucking stressors and creative dead ends. From recognizing when it was time to go to navigating feelings of guilt and regret afterwards, we're here to cut out the gaslighting and get real about what it means to leave teaching. We've got insights from former teachers from all over the country who have seen it all. So get ready to be disturbed. Join us on Teacher Quit Talk to laugh through the pain of the U.S. education system. We'll see you there. Thanks to Ana Luisa for supporting Muller, she wrote. Ana Luisa makes beautiful, sustainable jewelry at fair prices. For 10% off, go to shop.analuisa.com slash mswmedia and use code mswmedia. And thank you to Feels for supporting Muller, she wrote. Feels is a better way to feel better. For 50% off your first offer plus free shipping, go to feels.com slash MSW. That's F-E-A-L-S dot com slash MSW. Hey all, this is Glenn Kirshner, and you're listening to Muller She Wrote. So to be clear, Mr. Trump has no financial relationships with any Russian oligarchs. That, that's what he said. I, I, that's what I said. That's obviously what the, the, our position is. I'm not aware of uh, any of those activities. I have been called a surrogate at a time or two in that campaign, and I didn't have not have communications with the Russians. What do I have to get involved with Putin for? I have nothing to do with Putin. I've never spoken to him. I don't know anything about him other than he will respect me. Russia, if you're listening, I hope you're able to find the 30,000 emails that are missing. So, it is political. You're a communist. No, Mr. Green. Communism is just a red herring. Like all members of the oldest profession, I'm a capitalist. Hello, and welcome to Muller She Wrote. I'm your host, A.G., Allison Gill, and we have a big show for you this week, including an update on Roger Stone, uh, something about Kushner and Steve. Steve is what I like to call Steve Mnuchin. And the Andrew Weissman alternate, quote-unquote, Mueller report, which isn't actually an alternate Mueller report. It's a summary of Team M, and Team M is Team Manafort, which was led by Andrew Weissman, who's kind of been off the radar for the last almost a year. Um, he's only popped up. There's been like four Andrew Weissman sightings, and they've been very minimal, and he used to be everywhere. I imagine he was working on redacting this report because it's pretty much all redacted. There's not much in it that we can see. But what we can see is pretty powerful. It seems like more bold language than than Mueller, than Mueller's report. And, and you know, we don't know if Mueller actually wrote the Mueller report. I doubt it. I'm sure he approved it and made, you know, made changes to it or whatever. But either way, whoever wrote the Mueller report was a lot softer in their language than Weissman is 
in this report. I wish the whole Mueller report was written by Andrew Weissman. Um, Anyway, we're going to go over that. There's a lot of really interesting standout things in there, especially with redactions that have to do with harm to ongoing matters. And I think we can guess which matters those are when we get to them. But there's a lot that we that I didn't realize that was going on behind the scenes with the Ukraine peace deal. And when I say peace deal, I mean carving up Ukraine for Putin and Yanukovych. Uh, so that's that's that was their idea of of a peace deal. And that was that was brokered by Kalimnik and on behalf of Russia with Manafort and Yanukovych. That was the plan. That was the peace plan was to let Russia have Crimea and the eastern, you know, Donbass region and uh, put Yanukovych in charge of it. And uh, and then and then that's peace that then there will be will be peace in Ukraine. So Manafort also was in charge of the language at the RNC, the RNC platform where they weakened the language against uh, you know, Ukraine giving them uh, weapons. So it's all tied together. Uh, and it's it's pretty s- significant, some of these things. And a lot of them haven't had a statute of limitations that have expired yet. So we'll talk about that. And uh, we have a lot to get to, including some pretty great sabotage. So let's jump in with just the facts. All right, first up from reporters I don't hate at the New York Times. Shortly before the 2020 election, Trump administration officials unveiled a U.S. government-sponsored program called the Abraham Fund that they said would raise $3 billion for projects in and around the Middle East. Spearheaded by Trump's son-in-law, Jared Kushner, the fund promised to capitalize on diplomatic agreements he had championed between Israel and some Arab states, pacts known as the Abraham Accords. Steve Mnuchin, then Treasury Secretary, helped inaugurate the fund on a trip to the UAE and Israel, hailing the Accords as tremendous foundation for economic growth. If you remember Kushner's peace plan in the Middle East, he didn't even invite the Palestinians, and it was just a two-state solution. So, wow, yeah. Billion, three billion for that idea, please. Now, it, it was a little more than talk, right? At the time, no accounts, no employees, no income, no projects. The fund vanished when Donald left office. Yet, after Kushner and Steve crisscrossed the Middle East in the final months of the Trump administration on trips that included trying to raise money for the project, each quickly launched a private fund that in some ways picked up where the Abraham Fund ended. Kushner and Steve brought along top aides who had helped court Gulf rulers while promoting the Abraham Fund, and soon both were back in the same royal courts asking for the same royal investments, although for purely commercial endeavors this time. Not like, you know, brilliant Middle East peace plans or handing over intel to the crown prince about traitors who were then executed and exiled. Nothing like that. Now, within three months, Mnuchin's new firm had circulated detailed investment plans and received $500 million in commitments from the Emiratis, Kuwaitis, and Qataris. And that's according to previously unreported documents prepared by the main Saudi sovereign wealth fund, which itself soon committed a billion dollars. Kushner's new firm reached an agreement for $2 billion in investments from the Saudis six months after he left the government. We've reported pretty extensively on that. The New York Times report last month revealed that Saudi investments into Kushner and Mnuchin funds, that those investments raised alarms from ethics experts and Democratic lawmakers about the appearance of potential payoffs for official acts during the Trump administration. They totally were. But an examination of the two men's travels toward the end of the Trump presidency also raises other questions 
about whether they sought to exploit official relationships with foreign leaders for private business interests. Uh, hint, yes, they did. In the weeks after the election, Kushner made three trips to the Middle East, the last for a January 5th summit in Saudi Arabia with leaders of the Gulf monarchies. Mnuchin, Steve, that day began a tour through the region that was planned to include private meetings with the heads of sovereign wealth funds of Saudi Arabia, the Emiratis, Qatar, and Kuwait, all future investors. He cut it short after the capital riot, dropping the Kuwait trip, and in Saudi Arabia, meeting only with the finance minister. Jared and his aides have sometimes cast his private firm, Affinity Partners, as a continuation of the Abraham Fund. On a four-day trip to Israel in March to meet companies seeking investments, Kushner's team portrayed the firm as a chance to invest in the peacemaking potential of the Abraham Accords. People who heard the pitch said that, speaking on the condition of anonymity. Now, both Mr. Kushner and Steve hired several aides who were deeply involved in the Accords. A top executive at Affinity, retired Major General Miguel Correa, is a former military attache in the Emiratis who later worked with the White House. Top executives at Steve's fund, Liberty Strategic Capital, these are such great names, include a former ambassador to Israel and a former treasury aide who helped arrange meetings with the Gulf leaders. The transition from government work for one Liberty Strategic executive was so fast that his jobs appeared to overlap. A roster of 11 top executives and advisors provided to the Saudis uh, by April 2021, included the managing director, Michael D'Ambrosio, uh, even though he was still an assistant director at the Secret Service through the end of May. Secret Service, by the way, ding, ding. A Secret Service spokesman said that Mr. D'Ambrosio had disclosed his new employment to the agency and spent his last weeks there on paid leave. A lot of this shit is against government ethics policy, by the way. You'll notice I didn't tell you my real name or the agency I worked for, or that I had sued them and won until about, uh, what was it, a year after. I think I had to wait a year, just for ethics. No one told me to. Uh, I mean, it's in the policy. I just, you know, wanted to make sure I was being ethical, uh, which is apparently not something that Steve cares very much about. A former Treasury aide, known and a known close confidant, had resigned in 2019 and was waiting for Steve in the private sector. He was waiting for him. That confidant, Eli Miller, had been working with Persian Gulf Sovereign Wealth Funds at Blackstone, another investment firm, and immediately rejoined Steve at his new firm's founding. The path from public service to private investing is well-trod by members of both parties, to be fair. The two Treasury secretaries under President Barack Obama later went to Wall Street. But Kushner and Mnuchin, are, they stand out according to ethics experts, for the speed of their pivots and the sums they raised from foreign rulers they had recently dealt with on behalf of the United States. The Saudi investment with Kushner was made despite an whole advisory panel objecting to it, saying this is, this is bad, bad optics, bad timing. It's not good. He doesn't have any experience. He's not a, a hedge fund manager. What are you doing? But MBS said, nope, do it. Senator Elizabeth Warren uh, has urged the Justice Department to take a real hard look at whether Kushner violated any criminal laws here. Kathleen Clark, law professor at Washington University in St. Louis, who studies government ethics, said each fund raised different issues. For Kushner, she said, the reason this smells so bad is that there's all sorts of evidence he did not receive this on the merits. <laughs> yeah, of course. But with Steve, who was a successful investor before entering government, the biggest question is, whether he was burnishing relationships as Treasury Secretary that he knew would be useful to him in the future. That's more lawful but awful. 
If he was, she says, that's an abusive office. I don't know if it's criminal, but it's certainly corrupt. Of course. And before vying for Persian Gulf investments, Kushner and Mnuchin sometimes competed for influence in the White House. There was a little contest there. Steve had a few business dealings in the, in the region, Middle East, before, before the Trump administration, yet he spent far more time there as Treasury Secretary and met far more often with heads of sovereign wealth funds than his immediate predecessors. He made at least 18 trips over four years to Persian Gulf monarchies compared with eight made by his three predecessors combined over the previous decade. Many of uh, Mr. Mnuchin's contacts appear to have been informal. One of his first meetings with Yasir al-Rumayan, chief of the Saudi fund, was a September 2017 breakfast at the home of Stephen Schwartzman, that's Blackstone's chief executive and Mnuchin's neighbor. Mr. Miller, the secretary's chief of staff at the time, and now senior managing director at Liberty Strategic, also attended. Mnuchin met with al-Rumayan at least nine more times during the Trump presidency, including in Bahrain, Switzerland, and the Treasury Conference Room, using government property for personal benefit. And that's according to department emails and the group Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington. They obtained those emails through the Freedom of Information Act and shared them with the New York Times. In addition to multiple meetings with the Qatari Amir and other officials, Steve met at least 10 times with the head of the Qatar Investment Authority, good old QIA. Mnuchin also met five times with the head of two main Emirati funds, one at a Washington dinner hosted by the co-founder of the Carlisle Investment Group, and he met repeatedly with the rulers of the Emiratis in Saudi Arabia, in Riyadh, shortly after the kingdom's agents killed Jamal Khashoggi, a dissident uh, and columnist for the Washington Post. And the document suggests Mnuchin built a rapport with Sheikh Mohammed bin Zayed, MBZ, who recently became the Emiratis' president. As for Kushner, he made his highest goal in the White House the brokering of a Middle East peace plan, centered on funding from Saudi Arabia and its neighbors. The core of the plan was to solicit investments from the Gulf that might persuade Palestinians to relinquish some of their demands for a future state. At the culmination of those efforts, he and Mnuchin organized a Peace to Prosperity conference in Bahrain that no Palestinian officials attended, as I said. To court Gulf rulers, uh, Kushner helped persuade Donald to make his first foreign trip of his administration in 2017 to Saudi Arabia. Shortly after that meeting there with Mr. Kushner, the rulers of Saudi Arabia and the UAE led a blockade of Qatar, accusing it of supporting extremism. Qatar hosts our biggest American military base, CENTCOM over there, and the secretaries of defense and state pushed back for an end of the blockade, but Trump initially backed it. Remember all that? I don't think we need to go over the Qatari blockade. But Kushner returned repeatedly to the Persian Gulf. He made at least 10 trips during the Trump administration to visit multiple countries and formed close alliances with Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, and uh, that's Mohammed Bonesaw. After American intelligence agencies concluded the Saudi leader had approved the brutal murder of Khashoggi, Kushner defended the prince in the White House. And Mnuchin wasted no time getting back to business. Three weeks after the Trump administration ended, he said in an interview that he had plans, but he wasn't ready to, to discuss it. But by April 2021, his firm was showing potential investors a detailed list of target industries. Kushner got off to a slower start. He didn't get his $2 billion until recently, last July. And uh, he had not hired any executives with relevant investing experience. And I do have to remind everyone that this is the kind of shit that Tom Barrick has been indicted with, and he only took $374 million. But we don't even know if Kushner is under any kind of investigation. But speaking of Tom Barrick, his name shows up in a newly released but heavily redacted Manafort report from Andrew Weissman, head of Team M, M for Manafort, on the Mueller investigation. Here's from page 11 of the 37-page document. 
Tom Barrick and Roger Stone both recommended Manafort to Trump. In early 2016, Tom Barrick, at Manafort's request, suggested to Trump that Manafort join the campaign to manage the Republican convention. Tom Barrick's relationship with Manafort dated early to back to the 70s. Then there's a redaction for B5, which is code for information withheld pursuant to the deliberative process privilege. Uh, but then we pick up, it continues, Stone had worked with Manafort from approximately 1980 to the mid-90s through their various consulting and lobbying firms. Manafort met Trump in 1982 while Stone was working for Donald. Over the years, Manafort saw Trump as ver at various political and social events, including Stone's wedding uh, and the 1988 and 1996 Republican conventions. There's a whole paragraph here redacted for deliberative process privilege, and it comes back with Barrick during a voluntary interview noted his role in redacted introducing Manafort to the campaign and also noted that Reince Priebus, then chairman of the RNC, supported the idea of Manafort gathering delegates at the convention as a convention manager and writing the convention rules. Now, I've read through this entire report, what's not redacted, at least, and there are some very standout moments and interesting redactions for harm to an ongoing matter. So if we take it from the top, special counsel tasked Team M with investigating Manafort and related individuals with respect to matters assigned by the acting attorney general to the special counsel's office. Various charges were brought against Manafort and four others as a result of the investigation. Guilty pleas and guilty verdicts were obtained against Manafort and three others. One defendant has not yet been apprehended. And there's a notation here that says various Team M investigative leads were referred to components in the Department of Justice, including the United States Attorney's Office's for the District of Columbia and the Southern District of New York, the Public Integrity Section of the Criminal Division, and the National Security Division. We handed off a bunch of stuff. Manafort's ties to the Trump campaign are a matter of public record, it continues. He served on the Trump campaign from March to August in 2016, first as a convention manager, and as of June 2016, the campaign chairman. Manafort was allowed to resign rather than be fired from the campaign in mid-August 2016 following adverse publicity about his political consulting activities in Ukraine. He stayed in touch with various members of the Trump campaign, including the candidate, after his resignation and periodically during the transition and, at least indirectly, after the inauguration. Manafort's ties to Russia are more complex. Manafort served from 2006 to 2014 as a key political advisor to the Party of Regions in Ukraine and its principal leader, Viktor Yanukovych. Yanukovych served as president from 2010 to 2014 when he fled to Russia amidst popular protests. For example, it continues, Manafort communicated with Oleg Deripaska, Renat Akemtov, Sergei Lyavochkin, Boris Kolesnikov, and Yanukovych. Deripaska is a Russian aluminum magnate and oligarch with close ties to Putin and the Kremlin, Manafort performed business and political work for Deripaska dating back to 2005, principally aimed at installing governments beneficial to Deripaska's business interests. Akemtov, Lyachovkin, and Kolesnikov were Ukrainian oligarchs and politicians involved in both the party of regents and the opposition bloc. That's the Russian-backed stuff. Then there's a lot of B-5 redactions here, but it goes on to say, August 2nd, Kolemnik traveled to New York to meet with Manafort in person. Then a big B-5 redaction for deliberative process. Then it says Manafort described the plan as a backdoor means for Russia to control eastern Ukraine. And uh, I'm assuming what's behind the redaction bars is the plan, because it says Manafort described the plan as a backdoor means of Russia to control eastern Ukraine. And the plan, I assume, is the Kalimnik Peace Plan, the Kalimnik Manafort Peace Plan. 
where Trump lets Putin keep Crimea and puts Yanukovych in charge of it with Manafort's help. The report goes on to say Yanukovych believed the plan would need the U.S. president and thus was raised with Manafort as a conduit to Trump. Interesting. All right, everybody, we'll be right back. Stick around. Hey, everyone, I want to talk about a product that has helped me in my daily life. CBD isn't about what you feel. It's about what you don't feel. It helps with my stress, my anxiety, and those random aches and pains that we all get. Feels offers a variety of ways to take premium CBD, from infused mints to tinctures and oils. It's a better way to feel better. Your head will remain clear while you feel your best. And it's delivered right to your door. I love it. It's a hassle-free situation, which I, I absolutely love because it's so convenient. And CBD naturally helps reduce stress, anxiety, pain, and sleeplessness. And with feels, there's no hangover, no possibility of addiction. You just place a few drops of feels under your tongue and you feel the difference within minutes. I like feels because it's safe, natural, and uh, it relieves pain and nervousness without any side effects. And it helps me with these things tremendously. I use it every day. Plus, their products are grown with care and hand-harvested by Colorado farmers following organic farming practices. It's also important to find the right dose of CBD, and everyone's dose will be different. Uh, Feels monthly membership makes your self-care easy. You'll save money on every order, and you can pause or cancel anytime. Go to feels, F-E-A-L-S dot com slash MSW, and you'll get 50% off your first order with free shipping. That's F-E-A-L-S dot com slash MSW. And today's show is also brought to you by Ana Luisa. Ana Luisa has an incredible assortment of high-quality, unique, and affordable jewelry crafted with the planet in mind. Their products are 100% water-neutral and 100% carbon-neutral, from packaging to the products themselves. Their entire selection is highly affordable, with fair prices starting at only $39, making it even easier for you to shop for yourself or to find the perfect gift for that special someone you're trying to impress. I recently ordered these awesome Elise pendant earrings. It goes with everything. I've had them in my ears and I have no soreness. They're very comfortable and wonderful, made of very high quality materials. And uh, I have a rope bracelet too, a gold rope bracelet that I absolutely love. With new jewelry collections released every Friday, there's always something new and exciting to add to your personal collection. I check the website every Friday and we have an Ana Luisa deal for you. Go treat yourself and your loved ones and use code MSWMedia to get 10% off. I absolutely recommend Ana Luisa. They're great. It's a beautiful brand, carbon neutral, they're sustainable, and the jewelry is just beautiful. So go check out shop.analuisa.com slash MSWmedia and use code MSWmedia at checkout. For 10% off, go to shop.analuisa.com slash MSWmedia and use code MSWmedia at checkout. That's shop.analuisa.com slash MSWmedia media and use code MSW media. All right, everybody, welcome back. Then we get to the background on Manafort. And we all know this, we've covered it extensively on the podcast. Uh, it goes into his ties to Deripaska. It says in approximately 2005, he began working for Deripaska, a Russian oligarch. Um, Deripaska hired Davis and Manafort to develop and implement a strategy aimed at protecting Deripaska's international business interests. Then we talk about uh, the Pericles stuff. The Pericles Fund was um, Deripaska invested in that telecommunications company with Manafort. He later sued him for that uh, and explained, it says here, political risk insurance. Deripaska used Manafort to put friendly political officials in office in countries where he had business interests. Then there's a ton of redactions for B7A, which is pending law enforcement proceedings. And pretty much the rest of the next few pages are redacted for that. I assume it's the investigation into Deripaska. Then it gets into Kalimnik and his history. He was born in 1970. Um, it goes on to talk about how his uh, how Jonathan Hawker, a British national who was 
a public relations consultant at FTI, worked with Manafort on public relations campaigns for Yanukovych. That's B7A stuff. Talks about Alexander Vanderswand, uh, who was also indicted. We know all this story. We know these stories. Then the report uh, starts to talk about Manafort's work with the Trump campaign. We know all that. I have already read you about the Tom Barrick and Roger Stone stuff. Uh, Russia and Ukraine communications. Um, There's a redaction there for B5. Communications in March of 2016. Manafort told Gates that being hired on the campaign would increase the likelihood that Manafort would be paid the approximately $2 million he was owed for his Ukraine work. That's why he was working for free, right? Then there's a bunch of redactions for deliberative process. And uh, then it says Gates explained that Manafort uh, thought the settlement of Deripaska's Pericles lawsuit could be favorably influenced by Manafort's new position on the campaign. That's the whole make whole situation. Then on March 30th, 2016, Gates emailed all the memoranda to Kalimnik, as well as the official press announcement relating to Manafort's appointment. And that's how they knew you have a conduit now. And then communications in spring of summer, spring and summer 2016. During late spring of 2016, Kalimnik continued to collect information on political situation in Ukraine. Then there's a bunch of redactions, and it says Kalimnik further explained that he planned to be in Washington, D.C. between May 5th and May 8th, 2016. And that's redacted for harm to an ongoing matter. Uh, I'm assuming the Kalimnik stuff, the Kalimnik investigation. Um, on May 7th, 2016, Kalimnik met with Manafort in New York City. Gates arranged the meeting. According to Manafort, he briefed Kalimnik on Trump campaign, expecting Kalimnik to pass the information back to individuals in Ukraine and elsewhere. Manafort stated Kalimnik did not ask for anything based on the Manafort position with the campaign. Kalimnik spoke about Bokyo's plan for election participation in the occupied zone of Ukraine. Okay, so installing a leader. That's all B5 and B7A redacted, harm to an ongoing matter and deliberative process, and most of the rest of these pages are redacted. It goes on here, there's a little blurb that says Manafort had alleged he was willing to brief Deripaska on public campaign matters and gave an example. Why Trump selected Pence as the vice presidential running mate. That was some of the information he gave to Russia. Manafort noted that if Trump won, Deripaska would want to use Manafort to advance whatever interest Deripaska had in the United States. Then it goes on to the August 2nd, 2016 meeting. On the evening of August 2nd, 2016, Manafort met with Kalimnik and Gates at the Havana Club in New York across the street from blank. Trump campaign headquarters at Trump Tower. Gates arrived late, etc. We know about this meeting, right? We know all about it. And here's, here's where it gets interesting. Here's where we start getting into uh, stuff that hasn't lapsed in, in when we talk about statutes of limitations. And I'm on page 17 here. Uh, down toward the bottom, it talks about the plan. After being shown a December 2016 document, Manafort admitted that the August 2nd meeting with Kalimnik uh, discussed a plan that amounted to a means for Russia to take over the eastern part of Ukraine. That's what the meeting at the Havana Cigar Bar was about, getting information about why Trump picked Pence and some campaign data, polling data, over to Kalimnik and also to discuss a plan that amounted to a means for Russia to take over the eastern part of Ukraine. That plan, which would create a semi-autonomous region in eastern Ukraine and have Yanukovych head the region. That plan was a subject of a discussion between Kalimnik and Manafort at least four other times. In December 2016, January 2017, February 2017, and redacted for harm to an ongoing matter. That's very interesting. Notably, Manafort initially didn't divulge this conversation, but did so only after confronted with a December 2016 document by Kalimnik that set forth the peace plan. So he wasn't very forthcoming. 
And we got a bunch of uh, redactions here. Kalimnik goes on to say, all that is required to start the process is a very minor wink or slight push from Donald Trump and a decision to authorize you to be a special representative and manage the process. With this authority, you could start the process and within 10 days visit Russia. BG guarantees your reception at the very top level. And Kalimnik concluded the December 8, 2016 email by writing blank, redacted for harm to an ongoing matter, and Donald Trump could have peace in the Ukraine basically within a few months after the inauguration. That's what that's the peace plan. Very, very interesting to me. Um, during there's another meeting here, redacted, redacted, and it says Manafort stated he met with Kalimnik and uh, Lyavochkin in January 2017 around the inauguration at the Weston Hotel in Alexandria. During the meeting, Kalimnik discussed the Yanukovych peace plan again, but redacted, redacted, redacted for privacy information. Manafort also stated he would have uh, told Lyavochkin that he believed Trump favored reuniting Ukraine, including Crimea. Interesting note. In February 2018, Manafort retained his longtime polling firm, uh, blank, 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 to to draft a pro to craft a draft poll in Ukraine, harm to an ongoing matter, redactions. Manafort worked with Kalimnik in formulating the polling questions, redactions, redactions, and this is February 2018. Okay, this is way after <laughs> all this stuff went down. All the you know the initial campaign stuff. Manafort conceded the plan constituted a backdoor means for Russia to take over eastern Ukraine. That's what, that's what he conceded. That's what they were doing, and that's what they were planning. There's a lot more uh, to this. Uh, most of it is, is redacted here. It talks a little bit about the August 2nd meeting. It says, finally, Manafort stated Kalimnik departed first after the Havana Room meeting, and that's, you know, they talk about that Havana Room meeting again. And then Gates's account of everything. A lot of it is redacted for sources and methods. Some of it's redacted for ongoing matters. I'm assuming, you know, some of these ongoing matters could be Furtosh, could be Tom Barrick, Kalimnik, Deripaska. Um, there's a lot that these, that these ongoing matters could be. And then post-elections meetings and contact, all of that is redacted. And uh, most of it is I mean, they do talk about the the um, January and February 2017 meetings with uh, issues of Russia and Ukraine in Madrid with Deripaska associate Gregory Oganoff and the second with Konstantin Kalimnik himself. And that's, Jan and that's February of 2017, um, after the inauguration. And they talk about those two meetings. Manafort denied meeting Oganoff in January or Kalimnik in February. At first, he denied it and eventually admitted both meetings after being shown some proof. Manafort said he traveled to Madrid for telephonica business that he had with business associates. Uh, a business associate whose name is redacted for harm to an ongoing matter. No, for, excuse me, privacy. And during that trip, Manafort and Oganoff had a one-hour breakfast meeting with no one else there. Manafort claimed that the meeting with Aganov was set up by his counsel and concerned only the Pericles lawsuit, the Deripaska lawsuit. He claimed Aganov said Manafort needed to meet Deripaska to resolve the Pericles lawsuit. Manafort agreed, but said he would not travel to Ukraine or Russia for the meeting. And there's some more redactions, a couple more meetings. 
Notwithstanding the fact Manafort claimed the meeting was about a lawsuit, prior to the meeting, Manafort received text messages to the contrary from a number believed to be associated with Konstantin Kalimnik. Kalimnik, not Manafort's counsel, had coordinated the meeting. <laughs> Oops. And then there's a, a redaction for harm to an ongoing matter. My understanding is that it will be about recreating old friendships and talking about global politics, not money or Pericles, according to Manafort. January 15th, in an email to McFarland, it said, I have some important information I want to share. I picked up on my travels over last month. Manafort claimed the email related to an issue regarding Cuba. McFarland, who received advice from Flynn not to respond to the Manafort inquiry, appears not to have responded to Manafort. Hmm. Manafort had a second meeting in Spain a month later. This is redacted for B7A. Harm to an ongoing matter. Must be an investigation into whoever he met with or somebody else at the meeting. On or about February 25th, 2017, Manafort traveled to Madrid and met with Kalimnik. And then there's a name redacted to harm to an ongoing matter and then a bunch of deliberative process redactions and then some privacy redactions as well. So that is the long and short of this brand new, heavily redacted report out by Andrew Weissman. Well, redacted, <laughs> maybe by Andrew Weissman. I'm not sure who redacted it. Uh, but it, it's very fascinating, all of the, the, the peace plan, quote unquote, about uh, handing over eastern Ukraine and Crimea to Russia, having Yanukovych be put in charge of it and have Manafort manage it. And that Manafort was Russia's conduit to Trump to get that done. It's time for some sabotage. And if you listen to the Daily Beans, this story will sound familiar. Uh, the feds could be pushing Roger Stone with a tax lawsuit. As we know, we've talked about this lawsuit. But on Monday, Justice Department prosecutors asked a federal judge to compel the Stones, Roger and his wife, to turn over all their financial statements and bank account information going back to 2017. Uh, the judge's order would force the Stones to disclose a potential treasure trove of evidence. Prosecutors would obtain records of any financial activity of Stone tied to the January 6th riot and the Stop the Steal efforts, as well as potential payments from pardon seekers. He was selling pardons, uh, politicians and private boosters, all their money that went to him, and possibly information about accounts that the Stones haven't even disclosed yet. So far, however, the Stones have refused to comply, and that's why they're compelling here. They're compelling them to comply with this. Uh, the, fed are, the feds are asking for that. Prosecutors filed the multi-million dollar lawsuit last April. The suit alleges the Stones defaulted on $2 million in unpaid taxes going back a decade and through various schemes attempted to conceal money and assets from government collectors. The Stones have so far provided no explanation for their failure to produce the records. Prosecutors have demanded all communications with Drake Ventures going back to January 1st, 2017, as well as all statements for any financial account tied to Stone for any time period from January 1st, 2017 to the present. The feds also want the Stones to account for all transfers between Drake Ventures and the Stones over the same timeline. So these records could verify the Stones' finances, corroborate statements from their accountants, and possibly reveal activity related to other entities or accounts. Uh, now, Stones' attorney, Brian Harris, is dragging out the proceedings. He argued in court filings that prosecutors want the Stones to dig up records the feds presumably already have, thanks to the subpoena to third parties like Stones' accountants. Further, Harris says his clients won't hand anything over until they get a peek at the documents in the government's possession. This seems to be a popular way to go. Like all the Republicans, McCarthy at all, and Jim Jordan and them, Banks, and 
they, you know, Scott Perry, they don't want to comply with this subpoena from the January 6th committee unless they see all the evidence against them first, which is bullshit. And now Stone is asking for the same thing. Martin Scheel, who served for 30 years as an IRS special agent for criminal investigations, said Harris's argument could pique the judge's interest. The defense is taking a real risk with getting hit with an either contempt charge or even possibly a frivolous lawsuit or a motion fine because their position borders on inane. That's what Scheel told the Daily Beast. Scheel also noted that prosecutors would want to know about any cryptocurrency accounts Stone might have maintained on the sly on the down low, as well as possible foreign accounts, both of which sweeping requests would appear to cover. The Daily Beast previously reported that one pardon seeker, Joel Greenberg, convicted sex trafficker and a wingman, quote unquote, to rep Matt Gates, offered to pay Stone an extra $250,000 in Bitcoin to sweeten the pardon pot. And BuzzFeed News reported in 2020 Stone had solicited money overseas, including from a Turkish billionaire. However, Stone's attorney suggests it's still possible that the DOJ already assembled a complete folio of Stone's finances over the last five years. I'm sure they have. But if Stone feels the evidence could open up liabilities in other legal arenas, he has options. For one, he could invoke his Fifth Amendment right, uh, though that move is more commonly associated with testimony and rarely applied to document production. More likely, his lawyers could file a protective order that would wall off the evidence in the case from the branches of the Justice Department. Uh, Scheel, however, noted that prosecutors would have gathered every drop of evidence before confronting Stone, like they have. Quote, I suspect the feds have come across some inconsistencies between what they have uh, derived from the accountants and what Stone is representing, and they're trying their hardest to pin it down before going to court and possibly having something blow up in their face. Uh, Scheel pointed out that uh, there's a parallel in the trial of Paul Manafort. The accountants, he said, responsible for preparing Manafort's tax returns, which were in question, were caught in Zugzwag, where they had no good moves left, only bad ones. <laughs> it ultimately came out that the accountants lied on the tax forms for Manafort because they didn't want to lose a whale of a client. But their testimony in court was quite compelling when they stated they repeatedly asked Manafort whether he had foreign bank accounts and Manafort commanded uh, the accountants that, to say he did not. Now, if Stone has withheld key financial documents, the act of concealment could demonstrate the essence of intent, right? A necessary step to securing a, a guilty verdict, right? That's the, the consciousness of guilt thing. Now, we know Stone is being investigated for his January 6th crimes, but I'm wondering if this tax lawsuit isn't in lieu of tax and fraud indictments, much like the Steve Wynn lawsuit to compel him to file for as a foreign agent for, for China uh, wasn't charged with FARA violations either. That's usually when they opt for a lawsuit when they don't have enough to charge. And with that, it is time to play the Fantasy Indictment League. I'm going to be indicted! No, it is going to be a... Indicted! Honey, dick. Indicted! All right, three people associated with Matt Gates and Joel Greenberg were arrested by state authorities in Florida this week in a ghost candidate scheme. Again, running a ghost candidate scheme is not a crime, but overfunding them is. And that's how they got nabbed, just like Artiles did. So if you had a rando Greenberg and Gates associate, go ahead and give yourself a point. And with that, I am going to open up with Gates and Gates associate L.A. Key, who had a weird jobless contract that, that paid money for no work with Joel Greenberg. Um, I have a rando. I'm going to I'm going to pick a rando Greenberg associate because I think more of these are going to start dropping. His his sentencing has been pushed back again. Uh, he'll be sentenced in August, the latest, according to the, the trial judge. Uh, I'm going to have Rudy on here and uh, DeGeneva. Uh, Tonezig, Stone, uh, Roger Stone and Alex Jones. 
I'm going to add a Proud Boys seditious conspiracy that was supposed to happen by May 20th, but we didn't see that third superseding indictment for the Proud Boys yet. A Tom Barrick plea agreement. I think they might push him to cooperate or at least take a plea bargain. And I think maybe a superseding Weisselberg indictment out of the Manhattan DA's office. We will see. All right. With that, those are my picks. Everybody, I hope you had a wonderful weekend. There is another episode of the MSW Book Club out today. I'm covering Allow Me to Retort by Ellie Mistal. It's an incredible book. You don't want to miss that episode. I'll be back tomorrow for the Daily Beans. Until then, please take care of yourselves. Take care of each other. Take care of the planet. Take care of your mental health. A vote blue over Q. I'm A.G. And this is Muller She Wrote. Muller She Wrote is written and produced by Allison Gill in partnership with MSW Media. Sound design and engineering are by Molly Hockey. Jesse Egan is our copywriter and our art and web designer by Joel Reeder at Moxie Design Studios. Muller She Wrote is a proud member of MSW Media, a group of creator-owned podcasts focused on news, justice, and politics. For more information, visit mswmedia.com. Hi, I'm Harry Lichtman, host of Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent figures from government law and journalism for a dynamic discussion of the most important topics of the day. Each Monday, I'm joined by a slate of Feds favorites and new voices to break down the headlines and give the insider's view of what's going on in Washington and beyond, plus sidebars explaining important legal concepts read by your favorite celebrities. Find Talking Feds wherever you get your podcasts. M-S-W Media. Hi, I'm Liz Winstead. I'm Moji Alawode-L. And we're the hosts of Feminist Buzzkills, the only weekly podcast that helps you navigate the post-row hellscape. We dissect all the news from that sketchy intersection of abortion and misogyny with our guests, the abortion providers and activists working on the ground. Plus, we have amazing comedians to help us laugh through the rage. Feminist Buzzkills drops Fridays wherever you get your pod fix. Listen and subscribe, because when BS is popping, we pop off.